From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, what is Israel's endgame in its war with Hamas? Over the past 50 years, they've tried two radically different strategies in Gaza, and neither succeeded. Fintan O'Toole will explain. He teaches at Princeton, and he's the advising editor at the New York Review, where he's been writing about Israel, Hamas, and the Palestinians. But first, some key states had elections this week with lessons for the 2024 campaigns. John Nichols will report in a minute. Tuesday was election day in some key states. It was a good day for Democrats. For our analysis and comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. His most recent book is It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism co-authored by Bernie Sanders. John, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you, brother. Well, the biggest issue on Tuesday was the right to abortion. It's been a potent issue for Democrats ever since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, even in deeply Republican states like Kansas and Montana. Strategists have been saying it's one of the keys to a Democratic victory a year from now. Let's start with Ohio which has become a Republican state since the rise of Trump. This week, voters in Ohio could vote yes to add a right to reproductive freedom to the state constitution. Republicans did everything they could to confuse voters on this one. What happened in Ohio? Uh, voters were not confused. They, they <laughs> voted very, very strongly for abortion rights, um, for a a really solid defense of abortion rights doesn't do everything that some activists would like, but but it uh, essentially moves the issue out of the hands of the legislature, puts it into the state constitution, and for all practical purposes, defends the right to choice going forward. Um, that's huge. And uh, it was a victory by a very wide margin, very very strong, solid victory that stretched across the state. And that's an important thing. Um, I was a newspaper editor in Ohio some years ago. And I, I remember that Ohio still had areas where you had a lot of blue collar Democrats who were not necessarily pro-choice. And um, when I looked at the map today, it was fascinating because uh, many of those counties where you might've thought of in that category had shifted over to a pro-choice stance. There are still rural counties that were not. Uh, but, I mean, you look at that map, and it was a, a very, very encouraging one for, I, I think, for pro-choice forces, and also, frankly, for Democrats, because um, this is an issue so closely associated with Democrats. And one of the subtleties, which we'll talk about in a moment, is that abortion rights is becoming uh, more than just a referendum issue. It's becoming a ballot line issue for candidates who are running. Uh, we saw that definitely, I think, in Kentucky and in Virginia um, and in several other states uh, when, when you look at what happened yesterday. And so uh, this is a big deal, what's going on. And I think it is especially important for Sherrod Brown, the sitting senator from Ohio, who's up for re-election next year. One of the most vulnerable Democrats by any measure, because he's running in Ohio, a state that voted by eight points for Trump in 2016 and 2020. And it's very notable that this morning, Sherrod Brown tweeted out video of all of his potential opponents, noting that all of them support a national ban on abortion. So it's pretty clear 
that A, Sherrod Brown liked the results of the referendum last night, and B, he intends to take that issue forward into 2024. Another key election that's centered on abortion rights, as you have mentioned, was in Virginia. This mm -hmm. was not a referendum, but uh, their regular election to all 140 seats of the General Assembly. Virginia, of course, now is a Democratic-leaning state in presidential elections. It has a relatively popular Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, who has some national political ambitions. Republicans were hoping to capture both houses of the state legislature and win total Republican control of the state. And Youngkin is well aware of the damage Republicans have suffered on abortion rights in you know half a dozen other states up to last night. And he offered what he thought was a strategic compromise that national Republicans could make into a winning message after losing over and over on this issue. And that was a 15-week ban on abortion with exemptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. This was the Republican program in Virginia. Democrats ran on protecting abortion rights and warned that a 15-week ban was not a compromise. What happened in Virginia? Well, first off, I'm going to quibble with some of your question. You, uh, you referred to uh, Glenn Youngkin as relatively popular. I think we might change that now to relatively unpopular because he had a horrible night. He went into a uh, an evening where I think a lot of folks thought there was a real chance that he was going to get trifecta control, control of the governorship in both houses of the legislature, which would have allowed him to advance the whole of his agenda. And remember, that is a agenda that certainly includes uh, assaults on abortion rights, but also has that so that whole parents' rights thing, you know, like taking power away from, from communities and having the state come down, you know, all sorts of ways to tell you that uh, you can ban books and things like that. And, um, and so Yelkin, I think, was feeling very confident. He put himself way out front. Um, the, the joke is that, that uh, you know, if, if he won on this Tuesday night, that was the beginning of the Yonkin for President campaign. Well, he didn't win. That was the end of the Yonkin for President campaign. <laughs> and, um, and we now have a situation in Virginia where abortion rights are going to be protected at a level that uh, we have not seen up to this point. Uh, I mean, it's really, a, it's a big deal. And the other big deal about it, John, is the people who were elected in Virginia I mean, there's a lot of young, progressive breakthrough candidates, a lot of firsts, um, the first trans member of the state Senate, uh, the first uh, uh, openly gay black male member of the uh, uh, state house, uh, you know, and a lot of other, you know, young, bright uh, candidates who I think are going to really shake up the Virginia legislature. And if I can add one other thing, Virginia has historically been a, a, a bad state for labor, uh, a right to work state. And uh, as these Democrats are on the march, you're seeing a lot of young pro-labor Democrats get elected. And I think that's going to begin to shift some of the landscape there as well. And I also want to talk about Pennsylvania, which had a different kind of election in which abortion rights figured. This was uh, a vote on a state Supreme Court justice. These are usually very low profile things. Nobody really knows who's who in these races. Uh, the Democratic candidate was a, was a Superior Court judge named Dan McCaffrey. 
He campaigned as a defender of abortion rights. Republicans spent a huge amount of money to get their anti-abortion candidate elected to this open seat on the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court in Pennsylvania might also be involved in certifying the state's vote in the 2024 election. Uh, so this is a really important one that's below the radar of most ordinary Americans. What happened in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court election? Well, um, once again, and I think we're starting to sound a little like a broken record here, uh, abortion rights proved to be a very powerful issue and the candidate who supported abortion rights won. Um, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court had was already a Democratic court, right? They, they had a majority. If the Republican had won this seat, though, it would have gotten close, right? You would have ended up in a in like, I think, a four, three, four to three. Yeah, it would have ended up in a situation where it was closer. And then if one Democrat went shaky, right, things could could shift or if somebody was missing on a particular day. This really solidifies uh, the Supreme Court as a, a democratic court, as a court that is supportive of abortion rights. And again, that on a host of other issues, labor rights, education issues, um, other social issues, um, this is gonna be a more liberal court. And so in Pennsylvania, it was a breakthrough issue. And it's one of the, the subtleties when we talk about abortion rights as an issue, John, that we should bring into the mix. And that is that abortion rights is winning. It's a winning issue right now. Um, but when it wins, it opens the door for a whole host of other progressive issues as well. And we've seen that in, I think you saw that in Pennsylvania, saw that in Virginia, I think you saw it in Kentucky. So this is, this is um, a, a changing political landscape driven by one issue, but also what's relevant there is that there's a coalition of people that are backing abortion rights. And when abortion rights win, a lot of the members of that coalition, supporters of immigrant rights, supporters of labor rights, supporters of public education, they win as well. And abortion was also a key issue in Kentucky, a deeply red state. Mm -hmm. Trump won Kentucky by 26 points in 2020. But Kentucky does have a popular Democratic governor who was up for re-election, Andy Bashir. Republican candidate for governor was a protege of Mitch McConnell, who defended Kentucky's total ban on abortion. What happened in Kentucky? Well, uh, again, the broken record, John, uh, <laughs> Kentucky uh, voted for the uh, pro-choice candidate. And here's what's interesting about Kentucky. The, it's a border state, and it is a state that has trended Republican. Um, it is also the kind of state where historically, Democratic consultants and people like Bill Clinton would have told you, kind of run, run to the center, be a little more like a Republican light. Don't mention some of these hot button social issues. Avoid, you know, kind of controversy and maybe you can slide through. Andy Bashir didn't do that. He ran as a pro-choice candidate. He had ads about abortion on air as part of his campaign. He also ran as a candidate who had vetoed an anti-trans bill and talked about that and talked about it from a moral standpoint. He felt that it was important to protect kids who are in, in you know, challenging situations. Um, and then he also went out when the UAW went on strike, he joined the UAW picket line and, and brought him donuts. Um, and, and so, although I think there's going to be a lot of effort to portray Bashir as a moderate, and he is in many ways a, a more moderate Democrat, but, you know, he won pretty much on, on Joe Biden's agenda.
he won pretty much on, on a national democratic agenda in a border state. And I think that's a real lesson for Democrats. If they compromise, if they go cautious, it's unlikely they're going to mobilize their base as effectively as they need to, to win in some of these tougher contests. But frankly, if they go in there as an appealing candidate and say pretty strong, pretty bold, pretty important things, um, there's a real chance to win. And Bashir won very solidly. One more that uh, I, I want to talk about. Uh, Maine had a referendum on public power. We've talked about it here. We did a segment with Bill McKibben. This yeah. is a ballot measure to end private ownership of the state's uh, utility monopolies and combine them in a publicly owned firm called Pine Tree Power. Uh, Bill McKibben here argued the, that would create excellent opportunities for the transition to wind and solar. Uh, the power companies are deeply unpopular. They turn off the power for some like 10% of the population every year. But they spent something like 20 times more, more than the public power advocates did. What happened to the Pine Tree Power Initiative in Maine on Tuesday? Now we got to put a different record on now, John. And, um, and that is the one that, that says that money can win elections. Um, and I don't think that's going to be a surprise to listeners to, to this program, because money is very powerful in politics. It's not the only definitional reality. What we see are there are other factors. But in Maine, uh, the power companies came in with a sufficient amount of money and a sufficient scare tactic uh, to upend the what was what was actually a, a very, very good idea and a very, very good initiative. And, you know, look, this is something that that we've got to recognize around the country. Uh, we have developed uh, a, a kind of a network of donors that can come through on particular issues and for particular candidates in election cycles. Uh, there needs to be, especially on environmental issues, there's got to be more of a of a focus and more of a of a commitment. Uh, to come in, if we're going to be stuck in this horrible money and politics system, uh, to help on, on issues like this. And it, it's something to be conscious of going forward. But I give the Mainers credit for you know raising this issue. This is one of the oldest, most fundamental issues in American politics, which is who controls power? Who controls water? Who controls transportation systems? A hundred years ago, Robert M. LaFollette from my state ran for president of the United States on essentially a public power platform. It's still a good idea, and uh, if you get if you have setbacks in particular places, that doesn't mean that you should give up on it. It means that you should find new and, and better ways to win. Of course, after Tuesday, everyone is looking to 2024. You already talked about Sherrod Brown's campaign for re-election to the Senate in Ohio, crucially important to us. I want to say a word here about Arizona where uh, a coalition of uh, Planned Parenthood, NARAL, the ACLU, and other groups are gathering signatures right now for an initiative that would put abortion rights into the state constitution in Arizona. And this would be on the November 2024 ballot. Seems mm -hmm. very likely they will succeed at doing this. The people who are doing it really know what they're doing. And that, of course, is not only a presidential election in Arizona, a key swing state, uh, but it will be the time when voters decide whether to replace Kirsten Sinema with progressive Democrat Ruben Gallego or the uh, Trump nutcase, let's call her Carrie Lake. 
Any thoughts about Arizona going forward? Well, first and foremost, I think we should be kinder to nuts. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, look at at the at the end of the day, uh, this is going to be something we're going to see in places all over the country. And the fact of the matter is that uh, pro-abortion rights referendums are now seven for seven, winning in red states, swing states. You know, pretty much wherever you put it on, you're likely to win. Arizona is precisely the kind of state where it would win. Once you get it on the ballot, it's going to win. It'll probably win big. Um, That will mobilize people. It's going to be a real factor. I think it does have a very big significance for the presidential race, because remember, um, Arizona was one of the states that really decided the 2020 race by a very small margin. And um, I think it's going to have a a great significance in a couple of other areas, too. Uh, You mentioned the Senate race. Senate race is complex because you're going to have Cinema and Gallegos both running as uh, pro-choice candidates if they both run. If Cinema drops out and becomes ambassador to the wine country of California, um, <laughs> then then that will be different. But uh, but it it should have some impact on the Senate race. It's also going to have an impact on congressional races, um, and uh, and I think frankly it's likely to have an impact on state legislative races. And that's a big deal because they've had a real battle in that state for control of the legislature. They have a Democratic governor now. So, um, you know, look, uh, this is the fact. There were foolish pundits who thought that abortion rights was going to be a sort of a a one trick pony. Right. It would in 2022, it might be a factor, but it would disappear very quickly. Then in the spring of 2023, when it had a huge role in the Wisconsin Supreme Court race, they said, well, yeah, that, but that's that's probably the end of it. Then throughout 2023, as it has influenced special elections for state legislative seats, people have said, well, yeah, yeah, but that's that's just a one-off. That's just that. Now we've had another cycle, a major cycle, where it's proven to be, if anything, more influential as an issue. And anybody that thinks it's not going to be a big issue through 2024 is a fool. It, this is a, abortion rights. The defense of abortion rights is an issue that mobilizes voters, that uh, gets them to the polls, and especially that has resonance with young voters who are critical for Democrats. So what they're doing in Arizona is common sense politically, um, and it won't be the only state. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. This is great. Thanks, brother. It's a pleasure to be with you. talk more about Israel in Gaza. In particular, what is Israel's plan for after the war? Before this war, Israel tried two radically different strategies in Gaza, and neither succeeded. For that history, we turn to Fintan O'Toole. He teaches at Princeton, he's a columnist for the Irish Times, and he's the advising editor at the New York Review, where he's been writing about Israel, Hamas, and Gaza. His most recent book, We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland, was published in the U.S. last year. We talked about it here. We reached him today in Princeton. Fintan O'Toole, welcome back. Thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, we're speaking on Monday, November 6th. In Israel, the toll from the Hamas attacks on October 7th, which is now one month ago, is 1,300 dead, mostly civilians, at least 3,300 wounded, and 
242 hostages are being held right now by Hamas in Gaza, according to the IDF. In Gaza, the IDF has killed more than 10,000 Palestinians, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, including 4,100 children. Is that enough for Israel? In your piece for the New York Review, you recall that the word enough was stressed by Israel's prime minister in 1993, Yitzhak Rabin, at the signing of the Oslo Accords with the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Remind us what Rabin said. Rabin, it's also worth remembering, was a soldier. You know, he, he was a military man. He indeed was one of Israel's most distinguished and, and effective soldiers. Uh, you know, he, he was crucial to, ironically, to the taking of Gaza uh, in the Six-Day War and, and, and of the West Bank, indeed. And he was somebody who had, I think he'd had a gun in his hand from the time he was 16. You know, he, he had no compunction about using violence, but he made two remarkable speeches. Um, one was uh, at the time of the announcement of the Oslo Accords in 93, and, and the other was when he was accepting uh, the Nobel Peace Prize in 94. In his 93 speech, as you said, John, he 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 made a rhetorical point of of repeating and emphasizing this word enough we've done these things to each other we've done them over and over again enough you have to be able to say enough at some point and uh, and in his nobel prize speech uh, which i think probably contributed to his his murder shortly afterwards he talked about making decisions when you're going to send people out to kill and die that uh, which he had done many 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 times and he said, you know, you, 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 you do these things and then there's a moment of silence after you've made the decision in which you start thinking about the mothers who were going to wake up the following day without their kids. You know, you, you start thinking about the consequences of all of this. And he said, in that moment of silence, while the clock is ticking towards the inferno, you have to think about, was there an alternative? You know, was there something else I could have done? And it, it, it's a really important moral distinction you know just that 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 process of agonizing about how you use violence and to what end and th this seems to me to be the critical question at the moment thinking about what israel's end game is in gaza isn't just an abstract thing for the day after as it's being called you you cannot calibrate your means if you don't know what the end is, right? So even if you say, well, the end justifies the means, which is debatable, you have to know what the end is. You have to have a sense of that before you can have any kind of, you know, moral calibration of, of, of how much is too much, when is enough enough? And it's it's so obvious from the outside that, that Israel has, has no sense of, of what the end is here. And it has no sense of it because, as you said, it's already tried two big strategies, both of which have collapsed. Well, let's talk about the first of those two big strategies, which was military rule of Gaza by Israel, which began with the Six-Day War of 1967, uh, lasted for 40 years. This is after Gaza had been a distinct place for you know millennia. 
Gaza was a city and then a, a, a refugee camp. Yeah. Uh, and then in 1967, with the Six Day War, Israel established direct military rule. How did that work? And why did the Israelis decide to, to give it up in 2005? Yes, indeed. I mean, this was the sort of the classic historical orthodoxy of what you do when you take territory, right? You 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 conquer it and you colonize it, you know, and, and Israel did indeed try to do that. It conquered it fairly easily. Colonization didn't work out so well. And, and of course, it, it it never was going to in, in this tiny strip of land where you, you had a, a smaller population back then, but you still had well over a million people. And you could not flood <laughs> that strip of land with Jewish settlers, with, with any kind of rationality, so this was this was tried, but it 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 ended up with three thousand Israeli soldiers guarding about eight and a half nine thousand Israeli settlers. So one soldier for every three colonists. That's not sustainable, right? So even even with all the support that Israel gets from America and and everywhere else, you just you just couldn't do it. And so of course. Uh, Israel had to come to the conclusion that that this was this was not viable, and then unilaterally withdrew from Gaza. Terrible political mistake. If if at that time it had actually negotiated and talked to the people of Gaza about okay, what is the future? We're we're making a big decision here. That could have been sold as a huge concession, you know, as a real opening up to some kind of 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 joint future. But uh, politically, it, it seemed easier to say, "No, this is this is our unilateral decision." And of course, then it was followed not long afterwards by Gaza winning the elections on the blockade. And there's one other factor in Israel's pullout from from Gaza in in 2005. The Israeli settler movement has always distinguished between Gaza and the West Bank. Right wing Zionists have always said the West Bank should be part of Israel. Uh, the, the Likud Party Charter, 1977, says between the sea and the Jordan, there will be only Israeli sovereignty. But they never claimed that Gaza should be part of that. And that's because the right-wing Zionists read the Bible to say that God wanted the Jews to live in what they call Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. But apparently God never told the Jews they should live in Gaza. God gives them very confused messages, doesn't he? <laughs> in particularly in that part of the world, but of course, um, m- many of the Israeli settlers. I mean, some of them pulled out voluntarily. But if you if you remember, we had those extraordinary scenes whereby the Israeli army had to go in and and forcibly remove some of the some of the settlers. So so there there, there was e- e- even I think you're, you're absolutely right what you say. But even so, there was still this kind of apocalyptic thing that what we have, we hold. We we, we've conquered this territory and, and we ought to be able to occupy it. And even though there was, so far as I've read, overwhelming support in Israel for the pullouts, people realized this was, you know, why, why were their kids at risk um, and, and sometimes being shot as, as Israeli soldiers to protect this relatively tiny settlement? Very quickly after the evacuation of Gaza by the Israelis, of course, then you then get the classic right-wing story of betrayal, of, of you know the idea that um, these were people who had gone soft and 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 had allowed this place um, to to become a menace to Israel and that that uh, that's been there uh, as a sort of toxic myth for quite a long time. The immediate follow up to the Israeli pullout was 
internationally monitored elections where Palestinians, the only vote the Palestinians have ever had, where they uh, had to choose between Fatah, a secular socialist organization that had led the Palestinian movement for decades, this was under Yasser Arafat, and Hamas, which was, of course, an Islamic fundamentalist movement that refused to recognize the Oslo Accords, had carried out terror attacks against Israel. And in that election, supposedly a fair election, according to the international monitors, Hamas got a few more votes than Fatah. And, and as, as you said, Hamas took over control of Gaza, kicked out the PLO and Arafat, which then established their headquarters with the help of the Israelis in Ramallah. And you say this second period of Hamas rule of Gaza was what you call the real alternative to military occupation and colonization for Israel. Please explain why you say that. So uh, it's it's pretty clear if you if you if you read the history and 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 also you look at the evidence of Israel's repeated wars on Gaza since then that it was this extraordinary strategy. I mean, it is it is quite difficult to get your head around, but actually very explicit. I mean, there's no great mystery about it, which was that Israel had so so while it was while Gaza was under Israeli military occupation, the military government had started to actually put money into the Muslim Brotherhood. So the Muslim Brotherhood is the parent organization of, of, of Hamas. It was banned, of course, by the Egyptians while the Egyptians were, were uh, ruling Gaza. Uh, it was brought back to life, as it were, by Israel and funded and encouraged, even though, I mean, it, it's, its charter is, is hair-raisingly anti-Semitic, the, the worst kind of fundamentalist jihadism that you can you can imagine. But the strategy was, well, actually, this splits the Palestinians. And the, the mainstream of Palestinian politics was understood to be the PLO. So you get this alternative to the PLO. Well, particularly after Hamas took control of Gaza, this is seen as a good thing because it, it completely undermines it as a, as a political movement. And so you're able to say, well, we would love to have negotiations. We'd, we'd love to be you know, involved in peace process. But look at these people. We can't, we can't do it. Netanyahu, in particular, this strategy is on him. I mean, he's not, he's not the only one, but he has been the person in power uh, while this strategy has, has, has been implemented. And in military terms, it, it's, it's an extraordinary strategy. So, so because what this meant, remember, was, was going to war repeatedly with Hamas, but with the aim of le- leaving Hamas in power. So the, the military strategy was this, this horrific phrase which people I'm sure have heard, which is mowing the lawn. You know? yeah. So you, 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 you let Hamas get on with doing what it does and controlling Gaza. You know that as part of that, it's, it's, it's going to build up its, its arsenal of, of, of rockets. It's going to fire the rockets at you. You then go in and attack Gaza, but you make sure to leave Hamas in place. Uh, so the lawn is to be mowed. The lawn is not to be dug up. And of course, repeatedly in this, the main casualties as we're seeing now, where civilians, ordinary Gazan children and women pay the price for this strategy, but that's that's regarded as an acceptable price to pay. And it's sort of built in that you're going to do this every so often, right? Because you want to control Hamas, but you want to leave it in power. That crazy, crazy strategy, of course, collapsed in the most horrific way with the most appalling consequences for Israeli civilians on October 7th. 
And now, uh, as we speak, the IDF is about to start fighting in Gaza City, urban warfare. The U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin reminded the Israelis of what will happen, what's likely to happen next, what the what happened to American forces in the Iraq war that fought ISIS in Mosul. This was in starting in 2016. Mosul, not terribly different from Gaza City in its population and in its defense. The United States, of course, eventually won, in quotes, but it took 100,000 soldiers, mostly Iraqi soldiers, and Amnesty International reported that 10,000 civilians were killed in the Battle of Mosul. Coalition forces, United States and most, Iraq mostly, reported 8,200 of their own soldiers were killed. Uh, the siege of Mosul lasted eight months, started in October 2016, right about this time of the year, and it lasted until July 2017. And the Israelis know about this. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said last week, this new phase of its war against Hamas may last for, quote, months, close quote. And he conceded that uh, it will be, quote, insufficient on its own to fully uproot Hamas. So this takes us back to our opening subject, what is enough? Are they going to kill another 10,000? Will that be enough? And of course, when the Israeli leaders are asked about this, they, they don't have an answer. The United States this week, uh, last week, seems to have an answer. Uh, at the beginning of the week, Haaretz ran a photo of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken shaking hands with Mahmoud Abbas, president of the Palestinian Authority. And the headline uh, in Haaretz was Abbas to Blinken, Palestinian authority willing to control Gaza as part of a diplomatic solution, close quote. But then on Monday, a new report said Abbas made it clear to Blinken that the PA's entry into Gaza would be a difficult step that may present him as Israel's ally, close quote. You consider this possibility in your piece for the New York Review you know, I'm, I'm just trying to analyze it as objectively as I can from the outside, but it, it just seems to me to be completely insane. Israel has spent 20 years undermining the Palestinian Authority, making it weak, making it seem contemptible in the eyes of most Palestinians, uh, taunting it, showing it to be unable to protect ordinary Palestinians on the West Bank, even as we speak. You know, we, we've had these, these terrible, terrible attacks terror attacks, basically, on, on ordinary civilians in the West Bank, and the Palestinian Authority can do nothing about it. How do you think that you can render an organization contemptible in the eyes of its own people, and then say, oh, we need you now, <laughs> you know, come in and, and, and rescue us from this hellhole, take over a, a place that's, that's going to be just unimaginable, you know, blood-soaked rubble, with, as you were saying, John, I mean, God, how many people dead? I mean, how many? Is it 10? Is it 20,000? I mean, we don't know. With a completely traumatized population, with um, no healthcare system, you know, presumably that's going to have been destroyed, 
no physical infrastructure working, um, no education system working, uh, no political institutions working. And so you're, you're, you're going to take this very institution, Palestinian Authority, that you've, you've, you've kind of rendered so weak, uh, and then you're going to say, oh, ride it on the back of, a, of an Israeli tank, and, 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 and you can govern this now <laughs> on our behalf. I mean, it, 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 it just makes no sense whatsoever. And you would think the Palestinian Authority knows this. The only way in which it makes sense, the only a tiny way you could see that there might be a way this would make sense is if it were part of a very radical political process, which which also involved, you know, that, that this was a very clear step towards the establishment of a Palestinian state. Th- then you could see some credibility for the Palestinian Authority to say, yes, we are doing this, but it's a prelude to the creation of Palestinian state, which is going to include Gaza and the West Bank. But Israel has no intention of doing that, or certainly the current, the Netanyahu government has absolutely no intention of doing that. Uh, well, there, there are two other solutions, that so-called solutions that have, you know, seem to be floating around from, from, from the papers you read. One is that there would be, there would be ethnic cleansing, basically. I mean, that's, you know, there are clearly people in the Israeli government. I mean, these are the people who in Rabin's time were the the crazies, you know, screaming in the in the keyhole, you know, what, I mean, they were the, the mad, mad people. They're in government now. And there's a very substantial um, constituency there who want to see uh, basically, you know, drive the Gazans out into this uh, out into the Sinai Desert, let Egypt take care of them. And we will we will control Gaza then because there'll be nobody there except us. Uh, and we will do the same thing in, in the West Bank. Leave aside the sort of moral horror of that, you know, which would be would be considerable. Um, it, it, it's completely unfeasible because bad as the so-called international community is in all of this, it simply can't allow that to happen because it would lead to a complete implosion of the of the Middle East. It would lead to to war between states on a on, a, on, a, on an enormous level, and, and and that just can't be done. So that strategy makes no sense whatsoever. And then the, the one, the other one that's kind of been mooted is that some sort of international coalition is going to step in, you know, a coalition of Arab countries, or I mean, some some of the papers that we've seen leaked from Israeli government sort of talking about, you know, America, Britain, and France are are going to go in and send their troops into Gaza. I, I mean, this is just not going to happen, you know. And and all of this is about we create this 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 horror and then leave it to somebody else to try and sort it out. Uh, it, it, it just does not seem to me to be any kind of rational thinking attached to that. Fintan O'Toole, he wrote about no endgame in Gaza for the New York Review. Fintan, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.